Church, on this fine, wonderful, final day, final Sunday of 2023, let's do what we've been doing all year and open up to the book of Exodus as we continue our journey. Uh, we love the Bible, amen? Nothing better to do all year, every Sunday, than open up the scripture and see what God would say to us. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name's Tom, I'd love to do so afterwards, especially if you're looking for a church or if you're looking for salvation and not yet saved. As you open up to Exodus chapter 32, uh, I want to tell you a story about Vasily Arkhipov. He was an executive officer in uh, the Soviet Union uh, back uh, in the middle of the Cold War. Some of you were alive for that. You remember the hysteria, the fear, the heaviness on the radio waves uh, uh, and, and, and in the, the news cycles about the, the impending doom as the, the world's uh, countdown uh, clock to midnight. The apocalypse was coming because somebody would send a torpedo or a missile to some other nation and kickstart the retaliation. That would be the nuclear apocalypse that would send us, as they said, back to the Stone Age. Uh, Vasily was an executive officer in the Soviet Navy, and he was on a, a submarine with a captain and another officer, a political officer, and their staff, and they were underwater in, uh, uh, in, in just off the uh, uh, border of Cuba in international waters, and they were being chased by 11 U.S. Navy destroyers. Now, in their worry and in their uh, fear, the captain and the officer had demanded that, uh, and had decided that they were going to shoot one of the, the highly powered ballistic nuclear torpedoes that this submarine had. They were going to shoot it at the largest and the most fearsome of the 11 US destroyers because they had assumed... War had broken out on top of the surface where they had not been for weeks. They did not know whether the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union had come out into all-out war. And so here are the U.S. Navy uh, 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 destroyers chasing them in international waters. Their assumption is war's broken out. Let's shoot one, destroy it, and try to make a getaway. Had they done that, they would have kick-started Armageddon, as far as we as a, in pop, uh, pop sci-fi would sort of call it today, would have started the thermonuclear global warfare that would have destroyed civilization and cost hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of lives. Vasily was one of the officers and this nuclear warhead required three keys to turn in order to send it. And while the rest of the staff were fearful and begging to, to shoot the Americans, and while the other captain who had the authority and the officer were fighting and arguing with Vasily in order to agree with them and shoot the missile, he stood fast and stood firm, saying that if war has broken out, and even if we lose this battle on the sea and a hundred Soviets go down, it is better than the risk that we kill billions by being just trigger happy with the nuclear warhead. They came to the surface, they spoke peacefully with the Americans, they were allowed to leave Cuba and go back to Soviet, the, the uh, Soviet waters, and because he did that, because he stood firm in that moment, in, in a real sense, we all owe our lives to Vasily Arkhipov. He may have never heard of before. He and another Russian who stood in an in a almost identical situation just a couple of years later have been dubbed the men who saved the world. And in a very real sense, they did. 
we owe our thanks to them, at least in the sense that had they not done what they had done, had they not stood in the gap in that tiny hairline fracture between all of the military power of the world at the time and the death of billions and the end of civilization, that tiny hairline fracture needed to be bridged and they stood in the gap and did not allow that to occur. And today as we look at Moses' story in Exodus 32 and 33, we see two accounts where Moses stands in that hairline fracture gap between God and his wrathful vengeance that the Israelites have rightly earned. But if he had poured out, would have all but ended the Israelite nation and in one measure would have in fact ceased God's salvation plan from rolling on from Abraham onwards. Today we see Moses' intercession. It's just a fancy word for, for intervening, for going before somebody and praying and pleading for, on the behalf of somebody else. This is the intercession of Moses. So look at chapter 32. We will read mostly, our reading will be in chapter 33, but we do have a section of last week's story of the account of the worship of the golden calf that I told you last week. We skipped over, we'll be back. So look now at chapter 32, verse 9. In light of their idolatry, while Moses was still up on the mountain with God, verse 9 says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I, that I've promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now look at chapter 33, verse 1. This after multiple punishments are handed down to the Israelites for their idolatry, the Lord goes one step further. Yahweh said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. It all sounds good, doesn't it? This sounds exactly like the promise he'd always made that they were always waiting for. This sounds perfectly fine, but for the next line. But I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go up in your midst, I would consume you. 
So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Taking off the ornaments was a, was a sign of mourning and, and lament and sadness. Verse 6. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent, that is his tent, and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, each would stand at his own tent door, and watch Moses until he'd gone to the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses turned up, uh, turned again into the camp. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Verse 12. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, God, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That you is singular. He's talking about Moses alone. Verse 15, and Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not, uh, uh, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant and powerful word in our midst this morning. What we have here is Moses' prayer, his intervening intercession where he saves Israel on, in one sort of overarching occurrence, but in two distinct ways in this passage. In one hand, he saves Israel by his prayer to Yahweh, he saves them from being utterly wiped out, uh, uh, massacred, killed under God's burning hot wrath. And then God suggested, what I'll do, Moses, is I'll keep my promise to Abraham. I'll keep one Jew alive, one son of Abraham alive, and I'll make a nation out of him. And guess what, Moses, that's you. Don't you want to be the head of a nation? Don't you want to be a great patriarch? Don't you want to be the great prophet who is also the great father of the whole? And there won't be sons of Abraham anymore. They'll, they'll, they'll be sons of Moses. Don't you want that title but, but Moses didn't take that up. He, he, he did not want to be a replacement of all of his people as a mediator. As somebody who loves his people, he wanted the best for his people. Is this not the purpose and the point of a mediator? Not just to stand in like your lawyer or like your accountant. God bless, we're glad that we have them. But they're not your pals. 
They don't spend their time at home wondering how your weekend was. They don't send you Christmas. They send you the lame Christmas emails from their office, but they're not sending you handwritten letters wondering how you're going and, and praying the best upon you. They're not your pals, but, but this is how it was meant to be with God's ordinance of the mediator in the Old Covenant was, was that Moses was meant to love the people so dearly that he considered his lot as cast in with theirs. In fact... As we read the Hebrew in this passage, it says in verse uh, uh, 10 of chapter 32, Leave me alone, Moses, that I may unleash my wrath upon these people and cut them off. And we hear that, and it sounds like a command that Moses then disobeys. And he says, no, 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 God, I will pray for them. And, and we think, well, where does he get off disobeying God's clear command? But, but it wasn't a command. In fact, in, in prophetic literature in the Old Testament, this is not uncommon or not unheard of in other par, uh, portions of Scripture. Now, what God is really doing is offering a challenge. He's expressing a rhetorical invitation to the person who is meant to represent and intercede and save the people. It, it's as if God had said to him, I'm going to wipe out the Israelites if there's nothing else from you, Moses. It's as if he said... When you leave, I will send my wrath down to the Israelites. Will there be anything else? It was an invitation for Moses to know that from his calling back at the burning bush onwards, his lot, his life, his good had been cast in, thrown in, and united to the Israelites in such a way that when God announced to him, I'm going to kill them all, he was meant to hear it as a personal invitation and challenge. What will you do, O mediator? I'm about to kill them all. And so it is in response to that prophetic challenge, in, in response to that divine invitation that Moses steps in and prays to God and receives mercy for the Israelites. And then the second time is when God promises, uh, not promises, but when God warns and threatens not utter destruction. In fact, as we read it, it sounded pretty good. He, he threatened a, a, a distinction and separation from his people. So he said, all right, that's it. Moses prayed. A bunch of you died. The Levites slaughtered a whole lot of you who were idolaters. You all, you all ate the gold. Punishment's done. I guess everybody, let, let's go. Let's continue on the plan. We're going to Canaan. Everybody up and go, but I will stay behind. I'll, I'll let you guys go. I'll, I'll even send an angel. I'll tell you what, Michael the archangel, maybe Gabriel, one of them will come down and just do a tremendous job at being heaven in your midst. It'll be great and and you know what else, as we read? Uh, Moses will take his tent, like, like not the tabernacle, but a tiny little one-man tent. He'll go and pitch it, not in the middle of the people, like the tabernacle was meant to be. There's no more tabernacle. We've stuffed that plan. I've thrown away the plans for the gold, and the blueprints have been ripped up. But what you can have is Moses at a little tent about 400 meters away from the people, and instead of dwelling in there, I'll just come down every now and then and talk to him. And instead of having a, an enormous Levitical priesthood and sons of Aaron who work in there and are dressed amazingly in ways that teach you things about God and, and, and make you shake with awe at God's glory, instead of all of that, what we'll do is, is Joshua can just stand as the one-man deacon at the door, keep the tent in good order, and Moses can go back and forward. And you all, instead of coming and offering sacrifices and being cleansed and being, you know, worshipping in God's presence, what you can do... You can stand at your own tents. 
and you can sort of peer out and hopefully the guy in front of you hasn't erected a nice big pergola or he hasn't planted a big tree that sort of blocks your view. And hopefully you can get a good, a good glimpse of God coming down to Moses. That's what we'll do. Up your hop, let's go. Now, now I think that a lot of Christians hearing that, would, would pro- or professing Christians at least, would take that up. I think that if we had some kind of new covenant version of that, where God promised to the church that he'll give all the ordinances still, uh, we can use the Bible however we wish, there can be a group of people who'll give us wealth and health and prosperity and look after us and give us political influence and, and we will be the greatest and largest religion in all the world, but the Holy Spirit will not be in the midst of the church to save, to sanctify and to mediate God's presence to us. I think there's just nine out of ten churches today that would say, that works just fine. Did did you say political influence? My goodness, bring it on. Did did you say health and wealth? We'll take that. Goodbye, Jesus. But here the people are struck with mourning. They they start lamenting. They take off their jewelry as a sign of lament and and depression and mourning, and and, and they refuse to accept those terms. They, They don't really have a choice, but here they are crying and weeping because of that, that judgment that has been passed down onto them, the, the great difference. I mean, they were seeing it visually. It might be hard for us to think how, how really different that all was. It sounds pretty great. God was talking to Moses face to face, but it was so distinct from, from visible manifestations on the mountain, from continual dwelling in a golden, glorious tabernacle and clothing and sacrifices and processions and songs and all of that. It just became a DIY worship service You sing in your own tents. God will be far off. Yes, he will lead you. Yes, he will speak to you. But really, only through Moses from a far distance away without much else. And to this, Moses also went before God and begged and prayed that this would not be the case. They didn't want an angel. They wanted, as God had said elsewhere, they wanted the angel of God, which we've already accounted and and explained is God himself in some visible manifestation? That, that was God the Son. So instead of God the Son, they would receive a tremendous angel. This is like Jehovah's Witnesses before there was Jehovah's Witnesses. Instead of Jesus being, being the, the Son of God incarnate, they get, they get Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest created thing ever. But that was not comparable to the glory that was on offer. They were suffering a painful loss. They had a more diminished view of God now and experience of his relationship than they had had so far and even less than what they could have had in and through the tabernacle. But in verse 14 of chapter 32, look at what the phrase says. Chapter 14, sorry, verse 14 of chapter 32. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. Now, a lot of people read that and say, ah, see, see, God was never going to do it. I mean, God's sovereign. He he doesn't change his mind. It was just sort of a weak, empty threat. But he was never actually going to massacre the people because of their sin. But if you think that way, if you you over-theologize and under-biblicize, yes, you can do that. If you over-theologize God and under-biblicize God, in other words, if you, if you try and tie up all of these neat theological ends to such a degree that it stops making sense of passages in the Bible, then you may as well throw out your whole Bible. Because 
<coughs> because nothing that God really ever does or says matters anything. He's sovereign and all of his purposes will happen anyway, right? What God reveals to us in Scripture is that he is entirely and utterly sovereign and that nothing ever happens without his intentional, intricate, meticulous decree of it before the foundations of the world. The, the fingernail that broke as you were getting ready this morning and the loved one that passed away before their seeming time, all of it intricately woven and planned by God himself. Nothing happens without God's sovereign decree. And nothing, nothing ever happens where God changes his mind. He, he, is not, he is not changed by human or demonic or angelic occurrences. He's not rolling with the punches. And yet, one of the ways that God, one of the, the way that God has decreed everything to occur is to occur in and through and even because of certain human covenantal occurrences. In other words, did, did God always decree that he would take Israel out of this sinful situation and get them to Canaan and he wouldn't kill them all? Of course he decreed that. So did Moses come in and change God in any way? Not ultimately. But rather we can say it more, more, more purposefully like this. God ordained from before all of time that he would get Israel out of this sin into Canaan through the intercession and because of the mediation of Moses. Which means, in a true way, we, we must and we can say this, if Moses had not have prayed, the people would have perished. If you can't say that, then you just need to start tearing out pages of your Bible. Because the sovereign decrees of God always uh, uh, manifest in contingent occurrences in our, in our real experience. Do you understand what I mean? Really what I'm saying is this. When we pray, we do truly and really change the course of families, individuals, situations, towns, cities, nations, and the people of God. That is fact. Prayer changes things. Prayer from, from Elijah to God, from, 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 from uh, uh, Mordecai and Esther as they prayed to God for the Jews under the Persians. Uh, uh, Hezekiah as he prayed because the Assyrians were surrounding them. Their prayers turn the hand and the mind and the heart of God and so see things change. We cannot over-theologize this passage so much that you may as well just white out all of Moses' prayers. Where God just, well, I'm going to kill you. No, I won't. That wasn't a plan. And move on. God has so inspired scripture in this way so that we see God ready to unleash his wrath, Moses go before him and intercede, and then God relent of that disaster, not because he is changeable, but because he has always planned and decreed to react or respond in time to our prayers, to the prayers of his people, and especially to the prayers of his appointed mediators. And so he did. He heard Moses, and he relented from the disaster. Therefore, Israel still had life. Secondly, look at uh, chapter 33 as we see God's response in verse 17. As Moses prayed again in that situation about God not going with them, and we might think that Moses was hard of hearing as he's talking to God, because he says, God, God, you have to go with us. God says, okay, I'll go with you. And Moses said, if you won't go with us, then, 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 then don't send us out. Did, did he not listen? But the Hebrew is in the singular and the plural. God said, Moses, I'll go with you. I'll stay with you. You didn't worship the calf. You didn't break the covenant. 
You killed the idolaters, didn't you? I'll stay with you, Moses. And again, special perks, VIP status, being Moses the mediator. But Moses then prayed in the plural and said, if you will not go with us, I end your people, is the phrase he keeps using. I end your people, you with us. Then it's not worth going. Here, God says in verse 17, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Moses convinced Yahweh to journey with the people instead of behind the people and away from the people to carry on with the plans for the tabernacle and the gold and the priesthood and the sacrifices. Or, as the word tabernacle means, and the word that God kept on using in chapter 33 saying he wouldn't do, God would now, from verse 18 onwards, and we'll see this in in following sermons, that God will now dwell in their midst. Because he promised he would, but mostly because the mediator and interceder had prayed that God would. In response to that prayer of Moses, God agrees to dwell in their midst. It's worth looking at the content of Moses' prayer. Look look back at verse 11 of chapter 32. As Moses is up on the mountain, he hasn't even gone down yet. He hasn't seen the idolatry yet. He's, he hasn't got the Levites to kill a bunch of people. He hasn't ground up the gold yet. He, he's with God up on the mountain, and God just tells him, they're worshiping an idol, go down, and you know what? I've seen everything I need to see. These people are stiff-necked. They don't change. They don't repent. They stop doing something for a moment, and they go right back to their idolatry. I'm going to kill them. And Moses says in verse 11, O oh Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them in the face of the earth? The content of Moses' prayer is, first of all, motivated by the glory of God himself. He doesn't start by saying, God, this would be terrible for us, I've got friends down there. They really were looking forward to Canaan. Some of them have, 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 have been dreaming about milk and honey. Like it really would be unpleasant. He doesn't start by, by trying to twist God's arm on any human level. He takes the Lord by remembrance back to the, the ultimate and the most key chief purpose of all of the universe's existence, which is God, your reputation and glory will be diminished among the nations if you carry out your scheme of justice here. Of course they deserve it, God. You see what he says? He doesn't start by saying, it wasn't that bad, calm down, they're okay. He, He says, of course they deserve it. Of course you're just to do it, but by your mercy and your grace, you can sustain and even uh, uh, extend the reputation that you have among the nations, because otherwise. I mean, if you pour out justice, it's just. Yes, it's fair. But the people will laugh. The people will mock, and they'll say, see, these idiot Israelites, them and their foolish God, they couldn't, they couldn't get, to, uh, you know, uh, get along well enough to get more than a few months out into the wilderness. We knew it would have been better for them to stay under Pharaoh's gods and under Pharaoh's rule. I mean, this is, this is the case of, of, of the matter, that, that God would show himself. If he killed them all, then all the nations would have said, oh, it turns out that Egyptian gods look after you better than Yahweh. And it was a reaction to the diminished glory of God himself 
that first drove Moses to prayer towards God. In fact, this is the chief motivation of all acceptable prayer, that God would be greater glorified by answering your prayer. This is supposed to be the, the chief motivator of our prayers is the glory of the triune God. But he goes on. That's the first thing, is the glory of God. But he also prays in, his, in the content of his prayer. He prays on the basis of the covenant promises of God. In verse 13, he says, Remember, cast your mind to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. God promised them by God. He swore on Yahweh's name, his own name. Hebrews says, because there was nothing higher he could have sworn on. He swore on his own name. As far as I exist, as long as I live, by my own name, he made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, you said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. This, if the glory of God is the chief motivation for all acceptable prayer, the covenant promises of God are the chief basis for all acceptable prayer. Let this be two things. That you're praying for God's glory, that the thing you're praying for, you're praying for that because you can see how God will be glorified by it, but then you're praying on the basis of the fact that God has promised to do this very thing. We look to the promises of God as Moses did. And we call him to remember, not because he's forgotten. It's not as if God's standing up in heaven and went, I knew I left that post-it note somewhere. Abraham, Isaac, and Jeff, thank you. I totally forgot about those guys. Thank you. You've, you've reminded me. It's not that. It's that God always and ever holds his covenant promises in his own mind and waits for people of dirt to take his own covenant promises seriously enough to bombard heaven's throne room with them. It's that he waits for us to take those covenant promises. It's, it's that he waits for us to remember his covenant promises and take them so seriously that we then pray to him on that basis and then he sees those prayers as acceptable. Moses prayed on the basis of God's covenant promises. And then thirdly, we see that he prayed for the sake of his mission. We see this in chapter 13, from verse 12 through 16. Moses keeps on saying, you've got these purposes, you've got these plans. I'm not quite sure how they're all going to figure out. I've, I've got these prayer requests to make to you, because otherwise I don't see how your purpose of saving Israel, getting us to Canaan, glorifying yourself, sending a savior, I don't see how it can all happen unless you answer these prayers. And this is the third key direction of all of our prayers. All acceptable prayers to God will be for God's glory, on the basis of his promises, and in the direction of fulfilling his mission for himself. That's what Moses is doing. He, he can see God's plans and his purposes, right? And he, he brings it up to be distinct from every other people group on earth. And he brings it up as an argument to God as to say, I'm connecting my desire and my prayers, then it's not just my wants, it's not just my dreams. I really do see that this is necessary for your purposes, for your desires, and your expressed intentions. So our motivation should be God's glory. The basis of our prayers should be God's own promises to us that we bring back to him. 
And the purpose or the direction of all of our prayers is for God's mission in the world to be successfully completed. Wouldn't that just change your prayer life if you could just set those three things straight? That you're praying for God's glory, not your own comfort, not your own reputation, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be all the glory. That you're praying, not, not just desperately hoping that this might be agreeable from God, but that you're searching scriptures and finding promises and taking them like vouchers to God and saying, you said you'd do this. You said you'd forgive. You said you'd raise us up. You said you would establish ministers and churches in the earth. You said you would preserve us. You said you would save us. And here you bring these promise vouchers to God. And, and that thirdly, you, you think in line of the mission. Not just your family wealth, not just your own family dreams and goals and comforts and your own personal thoughts and dreams, but in everything. We recognize that prayer is a tool in the mission and the warfare to see souls saved, churches planted, and Jesus glorified. Those things. Are your prayers in line with those? That God would establish his great commission purposes throughout all the world. If those three things marked our prayers... What a year of change 2024 would be. Not just for our church, though yes, for our church. Not just for our families, though absolutely for your own family. But if we truly prayed with the desperation of Moses, knowing that we'll be heard, for God's glory, for the sake of the mission, on the basis of his promises, the nation would, would see a year uh, that, that it's never seen before if we just prayed like Moses prayed. This is the invitation of Moses and the, and, and the invitation of this story to us. But all of that being true, Moses is not just for us today an example. He is that. I want you to go home, pray more deeply, pray more desperately for God's glory on the basis of his promises for the fulfillment of the great commission in the world today for the salvation of all of the elect and the glorifying of Jesus. But the deeper message of this passage is not just a great example to follow. It's also that Moses is a shadow pointing to Jesus Christ. Because while Moses prayed for his people, and therefore God's wrath was withheld momentarily, Jesus prays for his people, and God's wrath is withheld eternally. In fact, every chapter that we go through the book of Exodus, I hope this is true for you, the message just gets clearer and clearer. It's starting to become 1080 HD, I think, as we get towards the end of Exodus. And the message of Exodus has nothing to do with Moses. It has nothing to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with a stinking tent in the desert. You know what it has to do with? We need Jesus. Moses was great. We need Jesus. The tabernacle was glorious. We need Jesus. The law is powerful. We need Jesus. Jesus. Salvation from slavery was wonderful. We need Jesus. As Moses goes forward and prays to God and we realize this, this reality, there can be no salvation without the mediator praying. God would have consumed his people if the intercessor did not go before him and ask for his promises. So also we know that we would not be saved if we did not have an interceder, but we have such a mediator in Jesus. The Westminster Catechism was sort of developed by the Presbyterians after the Reformed, uh, after the Protestant Reformation, and they had this a catechism as just back and forth question and answer as a learning tool. 
And, and one of their, uh, the, 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 the lot of questions that they have in there uh, to teach people theology has to do with Jesus Christ and how he fulfills the three key offices of the Old Testament. I preach on this like every couple of months because it is so key to our understanding of Christ. And it goes like this, that Jesus is our high priest, a better high priest. Jesus is our better prophet who speaks to us from God. And Jesus is our king. That in the Old Testament, they had prophet, priests, and kings. But in, in the New Testament, we have Jesus, who is all those things for us. And in question 25, the Westminster Catechism asks this. How does Christ execute his own office of priest for us? The answer Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. In other words, Jesus did not just atone for our sins on the cross. Jesus' salvation, his mediation, his ministry did not finish at his resurrection, much less on Easter Friday when he died. Jesus' ministry for us and his salvation continues, not even just up to his ascension or up until the, the Spirit was sent at Pentecost. His ministry occurs and continues for all of eternity. That even right now, Jesus has a... Have you ever met somebody gone friends with them, and then years later found out they had a twin. They got the lesser-known twin. I had no clue you even existed, but you've been around the whole time. This is what it's like sometimes as a pastor, as I explain to people the cross, the reconciliation by Jesus once for all atonement in our place for our sins, and then his continual intercession that is ever going on right now. And they hear about this. I've been a Christian for so many decades, for so many years. I've read the scriptures back and forth. How have I not recognized this? So, well, well, maybe it's a problem with the preacher. Who knows why? But here I want to give you the gift of introducing you to the lesser known other half of Jesus' mediation in his ministry. That right now, Jesus is in heaven pleading the merits of his own blood to the Father. Not because the Father is, 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 is against the Son's will and Jesus needs to convince him but because the Father and the Son, united in the Spirit, are so unified eternally in one pleasing will that what the Son asks for, the Father delights to give. And what the Father desires, the Son is already asking. And so all of the blessings that the Father gives to individuals who come to Jesus, all of the blessings that the Father gives through the Spirit to the church come in response, not just because of Jesus' life and death, but now his continual living forever, praying for us, for you, Christian. John Gill says, uh, what are these things that Jesus prays for? That's a, that's a pretty good question. If you didn't even know Jesus was praying now, you might say, what's he praying for? John Gill says this, the things that he intercedes for are the conversion of his that are still in the state of lostness and nature, the consolation of distressed ones, fresh discoveries of pardoning grace to fallen believers, renewed strength to oppose sin, exercise grace, discharge duty, and bear up under temptations, deliverance out of those temptations, perseverance in faith and holiness, and eternal glorification. In other words, Jesus, just like Moses, is going before God and saying, everything you promised to give them, 
to make them a holy nation of priests and a kingdom to God. Give that to them, O Father. Everything that I went before you and obeyed, all the law that I fulfilled, Lord, give them that righteousness. Everything that I died for, all the sins that I atoned for, everything I bled for and was put down under your wrath, into the ground, Lord, forgive them of it. I know this is a new sin that they just committed, that, that they hadn't committed at the time that I died, but it is covered already. It is paid for. Father, forgive them. Give them grace. Give them mercy. Give them pardon and give them your power. Romans 8 verse 34 says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus not only died for you, he now takes all the merits of his perfect life, his once for all satisfying atonement. He goes before the Father and lists all of those blessings and prays for you personally. Not just as, as one uh, conglomerate mass, the Christians, but for you personally, Christian. You're being prayed for by Jesus, the mediator, before the Father, that he would sustain you. Matthew, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was alive in the, uh, uh, a few hundred years ago in Scotland, said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But if he's just on the other side of the plasterboard, you'd have a good day. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And so, Christian, you can, you can get up today and say, I need more mercy. I've sinned more. I've sinned again. And what does 1 John 2 tell us? When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's there praying for you. You get up and you think, I need more power. I'm so weak. I have so many trials in front of me. So many worries still coming. I have so much weakness besetting me. We can know Jesus is making intercession for the sinners. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Before the Father, I'm prayed for. I'm covered. So I can also pray in Jesus' name. So, so, so what this means for us as those being interceded before the Father, what this means for us as Christians whose names are graven onto the hands of Jesus, whose names are, are being worn by the high priest of our confession in heaven praying for us. What this means for us is that you can go into a new year, into a new day. Goodness, sometimes we need to take it hour by hour. You can take it from 11 when church finishes and you can make it through to 12. You know how? by trusting in the merits and the pleading and the intercession of Jesus Christ. If God listened to Elijah and did miracles in Israel, if God listened to Moses and withheld his wrath down on idolatrous people, how much more will God listen to his son who is praying for a people with no sin on their account? He will listen. He will say yes and amen to every prayer and every promise that Jesus brings to him. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So friends, pray in his name. If he's praying for your name, you may pray 
in his name. Your name is always before the Father on his lips. Let your prayers always be going before the Father from your own heart and lips. Pray for your lost family members. Pray for this church and any other church you become involved with. Pray for the global Australian church. Pray for revival. Pray for anything and everything that God has said he can give in response to prayer because we are being prayed for. If your prayers stink, and they often do, John Bunyan said, there's enough sin in my prayers to damn a whole world. Yes, there is. And yet, by your prayers that are weak, you can say, Lord, fill up the distance. <laughs> he's, got, he's doing all the praying for me. All I can do is offer what I can. Pray and pray and pray. The mission of God cannot fail. Live in hope and sure expectation of the Great Commission's power and the gospel's saving glory. And persevere whatever may come, for Christ prays for you. Lastly, if you're an unbeliever, you can come to Jesus now. You can come and feel unworthy. That's tremendous news, because Jesus is praying for the unworthy. You can come and feel like you're far way off. That's tremendous. He saves those far off. You can come and say, I just don't have the words to plead a very good-sounding case before the Father, and I tell you, it doesn't matter. Jesus has all of the pleading dealt with. He has, had it, he has it all taken care of. All you have to do is come and say, Jesus, I need you. So come to Jesus today and be saved and forgiven of all of your sins. He stands ready to receive you. Let's pray. Let's bow our head. Father God, now there is some in our midst that are far off from you and that are unsaved. And some of them at least feel the weight of their sin and the guilt of their conscience and the evil of their, of their deeds weighing down on them. And, and they know that they are away from you. They know they have not experienced regeneration. They know they, that they are not one with Jesus and they are not forgiven. And we pray, Lord God, that at this very moment they would give their sin to Jesus. Not worry about what else they need to bring. That they would not worry about how they can plead their case but they can simply leave their case in the hands of Jesus, who is an expert at dealing with lost, fallen sinners with no case to be made but grace. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them your grace. You would give them a new heart. You would justify them, that you would fill them with your spirit and utterly transform their lives. Father God, for those of us who are saved, we know we are so by sheer and utter grace and mercy, and for nothing in ourselves. Forgive us, Lord God, for ever thinking ourselves better than others or more deserving than others. Forgive us, Lord God, for ever uh, uh, wandering into that mindset or from wandering from such a gracious Savior and Lord into sin. Father God, please keep us fast, keep us firm and, and held by this reality that we are prayed for, that we are loved, that we are sealed, and that we will see glory because of the merits of Jesus. But please, Lord God, make us productive, make us effective, and make us prayerful in our pilgrimage down here on earth. Father God, we pray all these things with thankfulness in our hearts for the year that has been with thankfulness in our hearts for the glories of the gospel of Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. 
We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.